Father God, would you please speak to us now through your word, and would you inspire us and renew us in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please be seated. We're continuing looking at Hebrews chapter 11, that amazing, amazing chapter. We need each other. We need each other. We also need the men and women of faith who have gone before us. They are our inspiration. They are described here as a host of witnesses. Now, I wasn't aware when I was preparing this that there is, in fact, a half marathon going on in Moscow today. I am not a runner. Run and fun are not two words that I associate. I think people who run for fun are crazy. And I'm astonished that there are even people who claim to enjoy running marathons. But I am told that when you do a marathon, you are usually dead at about the 25-mile mark. But something strange then happens. For the last mile or so, as the crowds are gathering and increase, and as you hear them cheer you and urge you on, you come alive again. And it's what gets you over the finish line. Well, the men and women who are described here in Hebrews 11 are our crowd. They are cheering us on. They are urging us as we get toward the finishing line of the Christian life. And they know what it's all about because they've already run and completed the race. If you go into one of the Kremlin churches, or one of many other churches, you will see in front of you a wall on which are about five or six rows of icons, the iconostasis. Those icons depict the faces of Old Testament heroes of faith, of the prophets, and of the apostles and more recent saints. It is a very physical representation of the, that host of witnesses. There they are, the heroes of the faith, joining in with the worship of the church today. They put their trust in God, in God who creates everything out of nothing. In other words, we need to look behind what is matter or antimatter to see the real meaning and significance of the universe. In God who promises a future city, a better country, a future reward, we saw that last week. In God who rescues those who call on him. That's what happened to the people of Israel after they'd fled from Egypt where they'd been slaves and stood by the Red Sea. They couldn't go forwards because the sea was there and they couldn't go backwards because the Egyptian army chasing them was there and they were trapped. All Moses could do was pray and a miracle happened. The sea opened 
and God rescued them. Or we think of people like Gideon, who God used to rescue his people from the Midianites. Of Samson, humiliated and blinded as he stood in the citadel of the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, and as he prayed that God would have mercy on him and his people. Of Barak, who delivers the people from Jabin, king of the Canaanites, and Jephthah, who delivers the people from Ammonites and Ephraimites. You can read about all of them in the book of Judges. If you want a really good read, I'm not sure how edifying it is, because it's pretty gory, read through the book of Judges. What is interesting is that they are all seriously flawed individuals. Gideon was at first hesitant, and then he tried to establish his family as a royal dynasty. Samson, well, the less said about him, the better. He had a tiny problem with authority, with lust, and with anger management. Barak, who seriously bottled out and was rebuked by Deborah the prophetess, and Jephthah. Oh, Jephthah. He made a rash oath, which meant that he had to sacrifice his own daughter, an oath which he regretted to the end of his days. Uh, but what is important? We're not told that about them. What is important here is that they put their trust in God. In God who can break down walls. The people of Israel stood in front of the fortified city of Jericho. It was the obstacle between them and going into the promised land. But, but they didn't settle down to starve the city into surrender. They didn't build siege engines. Instead, they walked around the city once for six days in absolute silence. And then on the seventh day, they walked round seven times. But on this occasion, they blew their trumpets. And then there was one long, loud blast on the trumpet, and they gave a great shout. And in the words of the song, the walls came a-tumbling down. It is not a military strategy that you will find in any manual. I would not recommend you repeating it if you are trying to besiege a city. But it was what God had commanded Joshua and he trusted God. They put their trust in God who gives his promises and declares his purpose. Verse 31 speaks of the faith of Rahab. She is the woman who sheltered the Israelite agents when they came to spy out Jericho before they came to besiege the city. Her inclusion in this list is remarkable. She is a Gentile, a non-Jew. She is a woman and she is a prostitute. Religiously, socially and morally, she is an outsider. But she puts her faith in the God whose purposes she can see unfolding in history. She believed that God was with the Israelite people and she wanted to be on God's side. And then there is David. David, the shepherd boy who became king, 
He had been told that one day he would become king and he believed God. And because he trusted God that his time would come, he refused to seize power by murdering the existing King Saul when he had the chance. Through faith, he conquered a kingdom. And there was Samuel the prophet, who so clearly heard the voice of God and saw the hand of God at work. He foresaw the purposes of God to build a kingdom that would rest on one far greater than any human king. And they put their trust in God who makes weak people strong. They won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, we're told. God uses our weakness to win his battles. The Egyptian army was drowned in the Red Sea. Gideon goes up against the Midianite army. We told, we're told that their numbers were like locusts across the plain. He went up against this huge Midianite army with 300 men. David, as a shepherd boy, defeats the giant and the champion of the Philistine army, Goliath. And Paul got this when he says, Therefore I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. They put their trust in God who can bring people back from the dead. Earlier we have the example in this chapter of Abraham willing to sacrifice his son Isaac because he believed that God would bring him back from the dead. And in verse 35, we're reminded of the widow of Zarephath, whose son died. She called on Elijah to pray for him, and he was brought back to life. And of the woman who ran the guest house where Elisha would stay, her son dies, and Elisha prays that God will raise him from the dead. But would you look at the reading? on our notice sheets because actually verse 35 is a transition verse i'm sure you may have noticed this as john was reading it but up to that point we've heard about people who by faith achieved great victories but now it conquers kingdoms, administers justice, obtains promises, became mighty in war, put foreign armies in flight. It's about success and victories here in this visible world. But after verse 35, after he starts to talk about the resurrection power of God, we see how it inspires unnamed heroes and heroines of the faith, not to remarkable acts of success and victory, but to remarkable acts of courage and defiance, of faithfulness and perseverance in the face of overwhelming terror and dreadful suffering. This is real faith, because these are people who are living not for the visible world, but for the invisible world. 
they are willing to suffer now for the sake of the then. We love to hear Christian success stories, the healings, maybe stories of remarkable business success in the name of the Lord, of miracles and of revivals. But faith is not really about looking for rewards here and now. Faith in God and in the resurrection is what enabled these people and many others to endure to face suffering and martyrdom for the sake of the invisible, for the sake of the future, for the sake of that city which is built not by human hands, but by God. This is the faith which inspires me, and this is the faith which transforms lives. There was an ancient saying that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. It was true then, it is true now. At the west end of Westminster Abbey in London, there are eight statues that have been erected to 20th century martyrs. They include among them Maximilian Kolber, those who were here on Wednesday, we remembered him, and the Grand Duchess Elizabeth of Russia. And as a young Christian, I was particularly inspired and challenged by the stories of Christian courage and witness and martyrdom in Eastern Europe as they stood for Christ in the face of an aggressively atheistic communism, and especially the faith of those faithful men and women here in Russia. And it continues. It continues today. There have probably been more Christian martyrs in the 21st century than there were in the whole of the 20th century with the rise of ISIS and the extreme Islamic jihadist movement among others. People who have stood firm in their faith despite terrible suffering. And these men and women of faith are our inspiration. But they're not only our inspiration, they're also our completion. In verse 40, we are told that even these, and this is quite remarkable, even these amazing people would not, apart from us, be made perfect. Amazingly, they need us. And the reverse holds true, we need them. St. Chrysostom in the 4th century explains it like this. There is a father who loves his family. They come together for a meal. Some finish their work sooner. Some finish their work before others and sit down at the table. But the meal is not served until finally all have sat down at the table. We're part of a family of a body made up of countless people whose names are known to God, who put their faith in God and in his word. It's a body which reaches right through, through, through space and through time. In our pride, we like to think that we're our own people, that we have discovered it all, that we have it all. But we need to recognise our dependence on each other. 
We're only here because they received, they lived, and they passed on the faith. We have been shaped by them. Our way of thinking has been shaped by them. And we still need them, their wisdom, their teaching, their example. We can see how they have run the race, how they have cast off the sins that cling to us, how they have persevered. And we realise that they are part of us and we are part of them. We, you and I, are the answer to their prayers. And so it is only when we are all gathered together on that final day that the feast will begin. They are our inspiration. They are our completion. And they are our joy. Of course, our main inspiration in the Christian life is the Lord Jesus himself. He's described here as the pioneer of our faith. It's a bit like you're hacking your way through the forest and in front of you there's one who's clearing the path, showing us the way to go. Or if we go back to our race and our marathon illustration, he's the one, the trailblazer, who's out there at the front, not racing on ahead, way, way ahead of us, but he's there being the pace setter, encouraging us as we go with him. Jesus has gone ahead of us and shown us the way. He faced the temptations that we face, but resisted them. He lived by trusting God, even though it meant he would be crucified. And he goes through the cross to the resurrection. And he is the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who shows us what a perfect, faultless faith is. And when we put our trust in him, when we're united with him, we share in his faith in that perfection. But verse 2 describes Jesus enduring the cross for the sake of the joy set before him. Those words have become very special for me. Jesus did not go through the, with the cross simply out of a sense of duty and obedience to his Father. He went into the cross in hope, in hope of the joy that lay ahead. The joy of being with his Father again, of heaven, of resurrection, of honour and glory, yes. But also the joy that, and I think this is probably more important the joy that, because of his death, many will be enabled to become part of his brothers and sisters, to become part of his family, to be part of his body. The New Testament knows of this joy in each other. Paul writes that the Philippian Christians are his joy and his crown. The Thessalonian Christians, he says, you are my glory and my joy. John writes to the scattered New Testament Christians, telling them about Jesus, so that he might have fellowship, communion with them. And he says, so that my joy will be complete. This is like the joy of the lover when the beloved says yes. A couple of weeks ago, I conducted a wedding service for a couple. It is an immense privilege for a minister to conduct 
weddings because you have a grand stand view. As they looked at each other, as they made those vows, their eyes shone with a radiance and a love and a joy in each other. It's like the joy when lover and beloved are together. It's like the joy of knowing that you're part of a loving family, that I am one with the other, belong to the other, that I am part of the other, and that the other delights in me. And on that final day, as we wait at the table, and as the last generation come through and are seated at the table, and as the Lord Jesus takes his seat, and as the meal is served, we will look round the table and we will see people, people who we never knew, we never could know, because they lived at different times and different places. People who were before us and came after us. But we will know that in the Lord Jesus we are part of them, just as they are part of us. And we will learn their stories, maybe dramatic, maybe not so dramatic, but each one unique, telling of how they put off sin, how they ran the race, and how they lived by putting their faith in God and their trust in the Lord Jesus. And we will see Jesus in them, and they will see Jesus in us. And we will delight in them, and they will delight in us, and they will be our joy. Father God, we thank you for this great host of witnesses. We thank you for their inspiration. We thank you that without them we will not be made complete. And we thank you that they are our joy. Amen.